Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time is Rishi Sunak's arrival in 10 Downing Street, the UK's Obama moment. We all remember what a breakthrough it represented when an African-American became US president. Does the same apply to Sunak, who will be the first person from a visible ethnic minority to become prime minister? He's a Hindu. His parents came from East Africa and who is of Punjabi Indian descent. Sanjay Chandarana, the president of the temple in Southampton, founded by Sunak's grandfather, said it's like for the UK. It's the Barack Obama moment where a non-white person becomes prime minister for the first time. Also a person from Indian origin and Hindu, which is another dimension. And everyone is very proud. We'll be chatting in a moment to Michael Bancole. Michael is a politics lecturer at Royal Holloway in London, who has extensively researched race and representation in politics. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our must-read monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't access online. We can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or shadowy hedge fund telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month and you are supporting independent, free and fearless journalism. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Michael Bancoli, welcome along. And uh, you think this is not the UK's Obama moment. Tell me why. So I guess there are two reasons why. Number one is Richard Sunak doesn't want it to be the Britain's Barack Obama moment. He's constantly sought to de-emphasise his race and he speaks about how he's a British man first and foremost. He's also not staunch anti-racist. So part of the reason Obama's election meant so much to African-Americans was because he spoke out about racism. He spoke out about how proud he was to be a black man representing black interests and also obviously representing the interests of, of Americans more broadly. So I think Sunak's done the opposite. Sunak's actually been part of governments that have passed racially repressive policies. I'm thinking about, you know, the Windrush scandal and how, you know, Conservative Party haven't done much to address that and, and other issues. I don't think this will be Britain's Barack Obama moment, in part because of Sunak himself. Yeah, although <laughs> there is a level of which he is who he is, isn't he? I mean, he is of Punjabi Indian descent. His parents did arrive in the UK from East Africa, so he's of migrant stock. He's of visible minority ethnic background. And you very often hear people say, don't you, you've got to see it to be it. Young people of South Asian heritage and indeed other visible ethnic minority heritage in the UK will see Rishi Sunak as prime minister and think, I can do that. There are no barriers to me in the UK. I guess the important thing to remember here is intersectionality, right? So, of course, he is an Asian man, but also he's the wealthiest MP we've had in, in British politics. So this idea that Rishi Sunak is from an upper class. Yes, he is an Asian man, but he's also an incredibly wealthy Asian man who has a, a level of privileges. So I don't think it would be realistic for young Asian people to be looking at Rishi Sunak and being, I could be like that one day, because actually Rishi Sunak has enjoyed some privileges that have allowed him to scale the political ladder in, in the way he has over the last you know, few years. Tell me a little bit about Sunak, as you say, then not really representing 
Asian people in the UK? In what sense is he unrepresentative, Michael? I actually think when you look at Conservatives, minority MPs, and you compare them to Labour, it's something I do in my research, there's a clear difference in how they act when it comes to representing the interests of minorities in Britain. So on the left, you have Labour MPs like, like David Lammy, like Diane Abbott, like Dawn Butler, who've committed a lot of work to anti-racist and protesting to anti-racist activism in Parliament and continue to raise awareness on issues that disproportionately affect minority communities. So I'm thinking about David Lammy when it came to, to Windrush and how vocal he was on that. On the Conservative side of things, we actually see their MPs, they tend to de-emphasise their race almost to the extent where they are the face of racially repressive policies. So Priti Patel was the face of the Rwanda deportation flights. Sula Braverman obviously took that policy on and talked, spoke about it being her dream. And Sunak himself, he's speaking to some of his constituents, if I remember correctly, and he spoke about how but under Labour, there was lots of focus on funding for deprived urban areas. You know, these areas, by the way, are diverse areas. He spoke about moving funding away from those areas when he becomes prime minister. So that's what I mean by Sunak not actually having the same focus on, on representing the interests of minorities. And look, as prime minister, you're not solely there to represent the interests of your community. Of course not. That would be a ridiculous kind of request to make. But there is this thought and, and there is this idea that, you know, because minority interests have been excluded from parliaments, you know, we only now we are seeing minorities represented in parliaments in big numbers. There is the hope that once minorities enter these positions of power, they will use that position of power to, in some way, as part of their political agenda, advance the interests of minorities in Britain. Yeah, well, there might be that exception, that expectation. But I suppose it's, it's a difficult one, I, I think, Michael, in that, you know, do people from minority backgrounds, do you think, have an obligation, a duty to try and carry some of their heritage forward with them into the front bench of politics? I wouldn't say anyone has an obligation to act in, in, a, in a way that doesn't, you know, suit their politics. So Richard Sunak, if he doesn't feel like he wants to represent the interests of, of the Asian community in Britain, there's no obligation on him to do so. But I just think what minorities voters, what minority voters do want is the idea that you know, we have someone who's in a position of power tackling the interests that could affect them disproportionately. So issues like racism, this is an issue that most minorities across Britain, you know, really do want to be challenged. So there is the hope that that happens. But I, I wouldn't say MPs minority backgrounds must do this or else. I, I don't think there is there should be a forced expectation on these politicians, much in the same way there shouldn't be a forced expectation on women who serve in, in high office to, to represent the interests of women. It's, it's very much up to their own discretion. It's just more, you know, there's the hope that they do. Mm. But I just find this phrase that, you know, he de-emphasises his race quite interesting, really. Just, uh, just explore that a little bit for me. So when it comes to maybe, let's speak about Barack Obama as, as an example here. Mm. Barack Obama constantly spoke about how he was proud to be a black president, how he was proud to be an African-American. He spoke about his heritage. He was really open about his heritage. Richard Sunak has spoken about his past. Now he's spoken about how his parents came here and how Britain has helped them. But Richard Sunak primarily focuses on the fact that he's a British man. He doesn't really emphasise the fact he's Asian. They actually try to de-emphasise this. It's part of what the Conservatives call the colour-brind approach. So it's about, no, I'm not Asian. I'm not black. I'm a British man, first and foremost. I'm a Conservative, first and foremost. And, and I happen to be Asian. I happen to be black. Those things come as secondary to their identity as maybe being British or Conservative. Whereas on the left, it's, it's all about, yes, I'm proud to be black. I'm proud to be on the left of politics. Those two things kind of work together, whereas I think there is an attempt on the Conservative side of things to really emphasise their race. Some people would feel good on him for that. I mean, I understand that 
there are people on the left who say, you know, you, you can't forget your identity, you can't forget your heritage, you can't forget your culture. But the conservative approach to it, as you describe it, has seen people like Sajid Javid ascend to the front benches for the Conservatives. We've seen Priti Patel as Home Secretary, Suella Cruella Braverman as Home Secretary as well, and now Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. So I suppose it's an approach, isn't it, that seeks not to look at what we might term structural racism, but says to individuals, do what you can, what you have agency for, and you can flourish and you can thrive. And that's the problem, because part of the problem with the colourblind approach that the Conservatives have typically adopted to issues of race and racism is that you ignore the structural issues that might affect you know, minorities and progressing in Britain. So you focus on the idea that, no, if you work as hard as I did, you can become Prime Minister one day, you can become Chancellor one day, but you ignore the disadvantages that might affect a young black boy growing up in Tottenham or a young black boy growing up in, in Hackney. You, you ignore the fact that they might have less access to resources that Richard Sunak had access to or, or others had access to. So that's the problem with the colourblind approach. You kind of ignore these structural issues that exist in Britain and you focus on this idea that anyone can make it because I made it too. Boris Johnson famously commissioned, didn't he, a, a report on race in Britain. And uh, that came to the conclusion that structural racism does not hold people back in this country. And yeah, what was bizarre about that report is we ended up, some parts of the report actually blamed minorities for the book about minority cultures being a particular issue and being an obstacle to their progression in British society. So, I, I mean, the Cell reports, the most one of the most widely discredited reports we've seen in kind of British history really so i wouldn't take too much seriously from what's been, sort of been raised in that report <laughs> yeah, it's commissioned by boris johnson a report by uh, tony sewell the commission on race and ethnic disparities which was uh, launched in early uh, 2021 more broadly in your research michael you've identified and this will come perhaps as no surprise to people but is sad all the same is the the torrent of abuse, particularly on social media, that politicians of all persuasions tend to face, racist abuse. Yeah, so unfortunately we do see minority MPs on the sharp edge of kind of really horrible abuse on social media. So going into the 2017 general election, Diane Abbott was the most abused woman by quite some distance, a female politician. She received some both gendered and also racialized abuse. In the COVID lockdown, we saw that Dawn Butler had to close her office because she received death threats for supporting the Black Matter movement. David Lammy consistently highlights the racist abuse he receives on social media. Nadia Tome is the youngest MP we have in the Commons, and she's constantly spoken about how she's had to deal with racism, not just from you know members of the public, but from her peers. So unfortunately, when it comes to minorities being in the House of Commons, we know that unfortunately their experiences are coloured by, by racism. We, they do they speak about it all the time. Even MPs on the rise, I conducted some some research looking at why minorities underrepresented the House of Commons. And, and a Conservative MP spoke to me about how he's received racist abuse and how he, you know, finds it difficult. So it's not even a left-right issue here. This is MPs from minority backgrounds across the spectrum have to deal with really horrible racist abuse. And unfortunately, this, this abuse is reflective of racism that exists in Britain today. Mm, I'm particularly struck by the racism directed at... Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London. It's not always 
overt racist abuse. There's a kind of a dog whistle abuse targeted at Sadiq Khan, isn't there? And it, 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 the number of times in which London is portrayed as, quote, a third world city, and that is linked to Sadiq Khan. I mean, it, it's not very subtle dog whistle racism, but it is dog whistle racism all the same. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen some bizarre things about Sadiq Khan on Twitter and some members of the public saying some, some abhorrent things about him, blaming him for terrorist attacks and linking him to the, the to purported decline of London as a sort of global city. I just, I just find it, obviously, unfortunately, members of, part, members of parliament from minority backgrounds have to put up with this abhorrent abuse. And it's, it's, it's quite commonplace. I, look, members from all backgrounds are discriminated against, but we do see this kind of racialized abuse of MPs from minority backgrounds. Yeah, stay there, Michael. We've got uh, Aaron wants to join in the conversation. Raj Unsworth on Twitter saying, uh, in relation to my question, you know, do, do we feel that minority ethnic MPs have some kind of obligation to talk about their heritage and the, the issues that are particular to their communities? Rod says it is not an obligation, but surely one would want to highlight the issues faced by Asian and ethnic minority people in this country. Aaron, welcome along. Aaron is on Byline Radio. How how are you doing, Aaron? What do you want to say? Hello, Adrian. Good to talk with you again. My question to Mike is is that, uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of the, the far right come into the Conservative Party, um, mainly from places like Britain First, uh, some former BNP, maybe some National Front as well. Uh, I mean, how, with that kind of like being the trend of the Conservative Party, uh, you know, um, influx, I mean, how does Richie Sunak survive in his own party? So this is an interesting question, and, and people are assuming that, you know, maybe Conservative voters won't, Necessarily, wouldn't like Rishi Sunak because of his race. I'm less convinced by this, and I'm less convinced by this for two reasons. Number one, Rishi Sunak at every turn has sought to de-emphasize his race, so he speaks about being British first, being a conservative first. And number two, I, I just, I just think ultimately those who hold really regressive views within the Conservative Party, like to be on the extremes of the party, I'm not entirely sure there's been this massive influx and literally every conservative voter or member is this deeply racist person. Yes, they might hold problematic views, but I actually think they might want to welcome someone like like Rishi Sunak, given that he's been at the forefront of some pretty abhorrent policies when it comes to race. And actually for the Conservative Party, the reason why having minority MPs in positions of power, um, as well as, so there's this kind of like, two things are happening with the Conservative Party, where they're promoting loads of minority candidates um, into positions of power, Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel, Suela Braveman, the list goes on. On top of this, they're pursuing a kind of racially repressive agenda, so like the kind of culture war, encouraging football fans to boo the knee, trying to discredit the rights, massive movements. Doing this with minority MPs in positions of power allows you to kind of really block any criticisms of, oh, they're a racist party. It's like, well, you can't be racist if you've got like Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, pushing for the Rwanda policy or pushing for uh, for Windwash or, or other policies because they're a person of colour. So actually, the Conservatives, minority MPs, act as almost like a shield for, for any kind of criticism or, or talk of their a racist party. I had an interesting uh, text coming. This is from uh, Nuzat Uthmani, uh, Michael. She says, um, yes, this may be the UK's Obama moment, but remember, he was followed by Trump. So, yes, it's a moment, not a significant, everlasting societal change. Unless Rushi admits and addresses institutional racism once and for all, he'll just move on like Obama did. Yeah, he will. And it's just, look, it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, I just think... On the Obama moment, I just think we have to remember the reason why the Obama moment is the Obama moment is because 
it was framed as meaning something to African-Americans. It was framed as this is your moment. This is the, the, the time when you as a community have kind of scaled the ladder and you have one of your own who's going to fight for you in office. I just don't see in, with Sunak how that could be the same when he's constantly sought to de-emphasize his, his race. And also with Obama, we didn't have like a clear set of like, okay, he's done this, that and the other in office. With Sunak, he's been part of a government, the most diverse government, as Boris Johnson continues to remind us, that has an evidence or a clear sort of body of work that was, you know, at times racially repressive. I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier the boon of the knee and, and, and other issues. This government weren't at the vanguard of kind of anti-racist politics at all. If, I mean, if anything, far from it. No, well, it's interesting. You mentioned the the booming of the knee. I think it was Pretty Patel, wasn't it, who didn't like the England team taking the knee of, of all Conservative ministers. Pretty Patel, who was the architect of the Rwanda deportation scheme. Prior to that, you've mentioned it already, the hostile environment of Theresa May's government and the appalling treatment of people from the Caribbean. I mean, I'm reading a book now, actually, uh, which is about, I think, the last black man to be hanged in my home city of Birmingham and the way in which people of his generation, uh, people of African-Caribbean descent, came to this country. He obviously was a wrongan, whether or not he deserved to be executed is another question. But so many people of that generation came to this country and then in later years had the records which would have proved their right to British citizenship deliberately destroyed. Not accidentally destroyed, not in, you know, some random fire, deliberately destroyed. And people of that generation who were then deported to Jamaica and elsewhere, some of whom died penniless and homeless on the streets. No, exactly. And and that's no way we should treat, you know, people who... Also, people from the Windrush generation came to Britain post-war to help Britain following the war. So it does feel sickening to, to know that lots of these people have been barred access to public services because their ID cards were destroyed. And through no fault of their own, by the way, their ID cards were destroyed. And, and, and up to today, we have seen families who suffered during the Windrush scandal. I mean, it's an, it's an ongoing scandal. They've received no compensation. And that can't be right. Interesting text from uh, Phil Howells. He says, I think it would have been more of an Obama moment if he had been voted in at a general election. I think that is an interesting point, isn't it? In that when it went to the Conservative Party membership, he wasn't elected, of course. Now, that may well have been for ideological reasons. Conservative voters tend to veer more to the right, perhaps, than the general public. They voted for Liz Truss. We then ended up in a situation after Truss's resignation where it only went back to the membership if two MPs could get 100 votes between them from amongst their fellow MPs. And that didn't happen. And therefore, soon that gets into number 10 as the, the sole choice, more of a coronation than anything else. But I mean, you'd like to think, Michael, wouldn't you, that for the great British public, the colour of his skin would not matter. We would be lying to think that it didn't matter to everyone. That just wouldn't be the case. And that isn't to say that he couldn't win a general election in this country, but the fact remains that no person of colour has yet been elected Prime Minister of this country by, by popular acclaim. 
Yeah, I do think that's an interesting kind of issue. And I wonder what would happen if Sunak was to, to kind of... I mean, obviously, we know what would happen if Sunak went up in an election now against Starmer. I mean, you know, where because there's the polling, but... I wonder how voters would take to, to Sunak as a politician. I do think that, look, we have seen declining racial prejudice amongst voters in, in the UK. Like, when you look at the Conservatives' minority MPs, what's fascinating to me is that because they don't perform well in what we would call ethnically diverse constituencies, so a constituency like Tottenham, the Conservative Party wouldn't do well in that constituency. Because they don't do well in those constituencies, a lot of their minority MPs represent what we would call white seats. So, you know, Adam Freeze, the MP for Windsor. Windsor is an incredibly white part of the country. You know, so the Conservatives and minority MPs represent parts of the country that don't have a lot of minority voters, and yet they're still being elected in, in large numbers too. Because the Conservative minority MPs have gone from five pre-David Cameron to 22 following this kind of modernisation of the party. So we have seen, you know, their number of minority MPs grow and they represent these white seats. On the Labour side of things, what's fascinating is that most of their MPs represent these kind of diverse constituencies. So, you know, I, I mentioned Tottenham, you know, Brent, like the Dawn Butler seat, and, and Battersea is a fairly diverse part of the country where I live. You know, these are kind of seats where there's like strong ethnic diversity, where, you know, Labour typically positioned their, their ethnic minority MPs. So I do think it's fascinating, but I, I'm actually convinced that voters wouldn't be turned off by a Sunak because, I mean, he's already been, you know, elected by, you know, white members of the Conservative Party in his constituency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that is progress, isn't it? And that is to be celebrated. And uh, I mean, ultimately, your your point of difference with him then is you say that he de-emphasises his heritage. He will not effectively overtly acknowledge the fact that he is of Asian heritage or will do so very rarely, rather preferring to push the fact that he is British um yeah i, I mean I, I i don't know i don't know how harmful that is michael i don't know i don't i don't think it i'm not, I'm not suggesting it's in any way harmful by the way i think he's he's very much up to his own so if if you know sunak wants to emphasize that he's a british conservative mm. he's very open to do that it's more that the de-emphasization of his race is coupled with a political agenda mm. that is in some ways disadvantageous for minority communities in this country more broadly. So, again, I, I spoke about he was part of Johnson's diverse cabinet that was thinking of passing policies like voter ID and, and, and their response to the Black Lives Matter movements. That's where I have the issue with the de-emphasisation of, of, of his race, because it's coupled with, you know, political agenda that is, in, in, in many ways, repressive for most minorities in Britain. One of his potential weak points, I don't, I don't know whether Labour or any of the other opposition parties will go for this, was, of course, the fact that he did have a green card ready to go and work in the United States. His wife is extremely wealthy and uh, wasn't paying all of her tax in the UK because she had non-DOM status. That is, we are told, changing or has changed. I suppose that emphasises a different kind of otherness, and it's an otherness that you've already touched on but the otherness of wealth and privilege. Yeah, and I think that's what's interesting about, about Sunak. He is an upper-class man. He's He went to, you know, public school, went to Oxford. He was a banker. He's a millionaire. <laughs> you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the wealthiest man to, to be prime minister and also the wealthiest politician we've had in Britain. You know, so all of these things do differentiate him 
also from the Asian community more broadly, like, you know, most Asians aren't upper class and most Asians didn't go to Winchester and most Asians, you know, he's also just different from the, most of the British public. He's, you know, a wealthy man. He's, he's, he's upper class. So a lot of these things do make Sunak very different to the kind of the average politician. I think another thing to say about minority politicians and, and this idea that they represent the interests of a minority, since it's a question I was asked by an academic that, that I'm kind of good friends with, Maria Sobolenska, and she asked the question that, you know, well, Sunak is obviously up, is upper class, but we do have lots of middle class minority MPs, you know, David Lammy and, and, and amongst others. You know, how can these MPs who are middle class, who are, you know, in, in Sunak's case, upper class, how can we expect them to maybe represent the interests of minorities consistently, given that there is maybe a slight class difference in that most minorities in Britain are working class, despite what the Brexit referendum told us, where we constantly saw references to work, white working class. Working class is, is, is far broader than the white working class. Minorities are typically working class. So how can we expect maybe, you know, minority politicians who are middle class, who maybe have a different set of class interests, to represent the interests of minorities who are working class? I, I found that to be a fascinating question. So there is this kind of divide between maybe what we see in the political class and actually what we see in the British public. Phil, by the way, who sent that comment about you know, not being elected at a general election, does add... He does think it's a good day for modern multicultural Britain, despite him being a, to- a Tory, says Phil. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think that's a, uh, maybe a, a point to ponder on, though. You know, whether, Michael, can, can we take something positive from this? I've been thinking about this all day, to be honest with you. Is there, is there anything positive we can take from this? And my answer is kind of like possibly in that, Look, when I was growing up, when I was much younger, when I was kind of loosely engaged in politics, I part of the reason I was loosely engaged in politics was because no one looked like me and no one, you know, was... I, mean, I didn't know many prominent you know, MPs of, of colour when I was sort of growing up and getting engaged in politics around you know, 2007, 2008. You know, Barack Obama was one of the reasons I kind of got involved in politics because you know, he was a black man leading, you know, high office in America. So potentially soon that could you know, trigger interest, you know, amongst, you know, young minority in, in, in politics, maybe they go on to, you know, pursue their own political interests. They might not necessarily become conservative members, but they might just have an, an initial intrigue in politics because they see an Asian man, you know, in the highest position in, in this country. So maybe that is a positive. Maybe that is something we should celebrate. But again, I, I just worry in terms of Sunak's politics and, and the kind of positive he represents within this conservative party. He's, he's, he's spoken about the culture war in some instances and, and tried to pursue that as a political agenda. So I worry about it from that point of view, but maybe he could be a role model to a young kid who's you know, maybe eight or seven or, and, and is just making those sort of first steps to, to political engagements. It is just one of those oddities of political life. Maybe there's an explanation for it, maybe there's not, that the party which has given us the first and so far only female prime ministers is the Conservative Party. They've got two. The party now, which has given us the only ethnic minority leader, is the Conservative Party, or visible ethnic minority leader, is the Conservative Party. Why isn't Labour, in particular, because it is the main opposition party in the UK, getting women, getting visible ethnic minorities into Downing Street? Well, Labour needs to look at, take a long, hard look at how they treat with our minority politicians. You know, many of them have come out and spoken about how the leadership of the party haven't supported them when they've been racially abused. So I'm thinking of Aspana Begum. She's spoken about how she's been racially abused and received 
no support from, from the leadership of the party. And I think Zara Sultan has spoken about this as well. Diane Abbott has spoken about this as well. You know, several positions who've received racist abuse um, and have received, you know, no support from the leadership of the party. I think we also have to look at the Ford reports, which highlighted that, you know, Labour has issues with anti-blackness. So Labour, despite being home to the most minority MPs, they have 42 minority MPs, there are 67, so they have, you know, more than half of minority MPs. The fact that they have so many of them, it does raise serious questions as to why they aren't being promoted to the front benches. So many talented minority MPs, you know, on kind of periphery of the party, why aren't they being promoted to the front benches in the same way the Conservative Party are doing? And, and we have to remember, the Conservative Party only have 22 minority MPs, and they have a, a large majority at the moment. So they're really doing a good job of, of promoting the small number of minority MPs they have compared to the Labour Party. So real questions, I think, need to be asked of Labour and why they're doing such a poor job. Raj Unsworth says minorities in all walks of life can attest to institutional racism, exactly why the Seal report was a piece of fiction. The Tories are hardly going to trash it, says Raj. And uh, Nuzat says uh, on, this, on this question of whether ultimately really it's the, the role model question, lots of good photo opportunities, I guess. Yes, he will become a role model to many, including youngsters, which is great, but it will be false hope that he provides. Well, listen, Michael, it's been fascinating to speak to you. I'm really grateful to you for your time. And, uh, you know, I think it's um, I think it's a. Uh, just a, it is definitely a, a, a sign of something changing in British culture. It may, it may be that the change in British culture happened a while ago when politics, front bench politics, is only now catching up with it. But I can't avoid thinking there is something positive for the UK about having a, a visible minority ethnic leader. No. <laughs> Michael says, go on, Adrian, you keep thinking that. <laughs> no, no. I, I look like, like I said earlier, Richie Sunak could be a role model for a young, young, for maybe a younger Michael who was eight and didn't know much about politics and saw an Asian man as prime minister. That would have been, you know, some sort of inspiration for me as a young man. So there, there is, there is some silver lining about Richie Sunak being the, the prime minister of the country. Some silver lining. <laughs> Dragged it out of you in the end, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, it's been great to speak to you. I really appreciate. Always it. a pleasure. Mike. Always and, a pleasure. Your, your deep knowledge and your research around this area, race and representation. You know, you know a lot about this stuff, and it's it's always good to have you on. Thank you, uh, Mike Bancoli. And uh, please remember to support Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Take out a subscription to the Byline Times because that's how we're funded. And in return, you'll not only be helping us stay on air, you will also be getting some fantastic journalism via a brilliant monthly newspaper and the superb Byline Times website as well. You get full details on how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.